the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Matthew. Jesus calls us to, and he models it, that if you want to be great, you have to humble yourself. If you want to be exalted, you have to humble yourself. Because the Bible says that God will humble the proud, but he exalts the humble. And so the key to understanding how God will promote you and how God will honor you and how God will give you a platform so that he might be glorified is when we humble ourselves and then God opens up opportunity and God opens up doors and God opens up platforms. In today's message, Pastor Gary will share with you about one way that the kingdom of God is different from how things work here on earth. On earth, if you want something, you work hard. You become the best at what you do. You work late hours, put in the work, get the job done. In the kingdom of God, it's not the same. The Bible says that the first shall be the last, and the last shall be the first. In order for us to be great in the kingdom of God, we have to humble ourselves. We don't need to be the best around. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Matthew chapter 18 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Well, we left off here at the beginning of chapter 18, and you'll notice with me in verse 1 that the disciples uh, are showing that they are human and frail and sinful like the rest of us, because it says in verse 1 that at that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, they have themselves in mind. They want to know who Jesus thinks is the greatest. And we know we have, that they have themselves in mind. Because later we're going to read in just a couple of chapters, in chapter 20, that the mom of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, are going to come to Jesus and ask on behalf of her little boys, full-grown men, who is it, Jesus, that might be able to sit at your right and at your left? Is it possible for my boys here? They're so lovely, so handsome, so athletic and charming. You need them. And uh, it's going to be an embarrassing scene. And the Bible says that the other ten... Out of the 12 disciples, the other 10 were indignant. And I don't think they were indignant because of the question being asked. I think they were indignant because they were mad they didn't think of the question first. <laughs> and then you also see a similar scene in Mark's Gospel, chapter 9. Let me just reference that and read it real quickly in Mark, chapter 9. And it says in verse 33 that they came to Capernaum, this is Jesus and his disciples, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? Jesus overheard them fussing about something. He 
knew, I'm sure, and verse 34, but they kept quiet because on the way, listen, they had argued about who was the greatest. (laughs) And sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. And so when we read here in Matthew 18 that they're wanting to know, Lord, who's the greatest? They're thinking of themselves because this is not the first time they're going to ask this. This is not the first time they're going to think this. Now, it might be prompted by the fact that earlier in the previous chapter, chapter 17, you remember if you were here for the study, that Jesus went up on the mountain, on a high mountain, and he took Peter, James, and John, and he left the other nine apostles down at the base of the mountain, is probably Mount Hermon, and he goes up to the top of the mountain, and where he is transfigured before Peter, James, and John, and then he goes down off the mountain, and he finds the other nine there, and they can't heal this guy who is, who is uh, sick and ends up being demon-possessed. And it's probably that here in chapter 18, that scene has prompted their question. Because the nine knew that Jesus took three. Mm, Aren't they special? And they went up on the top of the mountain. Now all all of a sudden we've been hearing about this whole transfiguration thing, whatever that's about. And we weren't a part of that little party. Aren't they special? And we're not, you know, and you can just kind of get this whole scene here. So now the next chapter, they're like, Jesus, who's the greatest? Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And verse 2 says that he called a child, a little child, and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And this is one of the things we pointed out last week. We talked about paradoxes uh, of Scripture where it's, it appears like contradiction. It goes against common opinion, common thought. Paradox from two Greek words, para, meaning beside, and, and doxa, meaning opinion. That a paradox is beside the conventional wisdom of the day. It's beside the opinion that is normally held. And this is one of them. That the Bible teaches that greatness comes through leastness. That Jesus calls us to, and he models it, That if you want to be great, you have to humble yourself. If you want to be exalted, you have to humble yourself. Because the Bible says that God will humble the proud, but he exalts the humble. And so the key to understanding how God will promote you and how God will honor you and how God will give you a platform so that he might be glorified is when we humble ourselves and then God opens up opportunity and God opens up doors and God opens up platforms because he wants to be glorified through us. But the moment we self-promote, then God is not promoted. And so he'll humble us. But when we are humble and we are servants of others and when we consider ourselves least, then God does his good and great work through us and he opens doors that we otherwise couldn't have opened through our own self-promotion. And these guys are arguing about who's the greatest. And, there's, and, and their ego is in play here. And they're wanting to know, you know, just who do you consider to be the greatest among us? And he has to bring a little child as like this visual illustration to show something that is a real-life illustration of humility. And he calls us, as he did them, to be humble like a little child. Now, I love the way that Jesus will use children to teach us lessons. And this is the first one. He's going to teach us the example of humility through a little child. And that's this scene here. And, you know, when you think about little kids, it isn't until they get older that they get full of themselves. 
You know, at first, little children are very humble, but then they grow up like the rest of us, and then they get a little too full of themselves. But originally, little kids, you know, a two-year-old, a three-year-old, a four-year-old, they're just, they're, they're humble in the sense of, you know, they know their place, they know their limitations. That's why we have to encourage little kids, because they're, they're timid, and they don't really have confidence, I'm not sure I can do this, and yes, you can, and so there's this kind of this, this humility, and, and, and there's, there's this leastness that little kids have until they start to grow up, and then they get a little too much of themselves, and then pride sets in. I, and I remember, wish I knew your story, I'd tell it, but I remember when I was in fifth grade, the first time I really saw pride in my own heart. And it was over the fact that in fifth grade, and this dates me a little bit, because I don't think they do this anymore, but it used to be that they made you patrols. They used to give you a little strap that you'd wear around your chest and then around your waist, and a little badge, and you'd go out and you'd help to direct foot traffic. You, you were in fifth grade, but you had fourth graders and younger, and you'd stand there at the crosswalk, and you'd put your hands out. No, you can't walk across this street. Yes, you can. No, you can't. Yes, you can. How many were patrols? Let me see your hands. All right, so some of you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Now, did you get the coveted captain's badge? Yeah, captain's badge. That's when I thought I was all that. Fifth grade with a captain's badge. Boston, little fourth graders around. Get behind me. Satan, you know, but I, but I, you know, I just full of myself, like, give me a badge. I had, um, right, you know, I had a wonderful, have a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. Got a call from the Lyon County Sheriff's Department. They're asking me if I consider being the chief chaplain. They don't have a cha- They've never had a chaplaincy program with Lyon County Sheriff's Department. So, uh, Colonel Harmison came, met with me and asked me if I consider this. So I'm praying through it right now. We're talking about well, what would be the responsibility and what's the role and, you know, do I have enough time in addition to pastoring? This is what we're talking about. But here's the first question I asked him. Do I get a uniform? <laughs> yeah. Because people with uniforms and badges, it does crazy things to your head. Because, you know, and, and then the second question was, do I get a gun? No. But I get formal uniform. But anyway, so I'm praying about it. Because that uniform, I don't know what the responsibilities would be, but I just want the uniform. Anyway, I, I digress. But, it's, but the idea here is that, you know, we, we get a little full of ourselves when we start to get older, and then we think too highly of ourselves. The idea of humility, this is hard for some people, you know why? Because the idea of humility, meekness to some people, they think that means weakness. If I'm meek, it means I'm weak. If I'm humble, it means, you know, I don't... I, how will anybody ever, you know, how will I get that job if, if I don't ever talk about myself? If I, what, is, what is the line between humility and pride? And humility is often interpreted by people as being a sign of weakness. And so people struggle with, if I'm too humble, it might mean I'm weak. But I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. You're going to love this if you haven't heard this before. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. That's what humility is. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it is thinking of yourself less. So it is being others-oriented. It is putting others first. It is having an attitude of how can I help and how can I serve and how can I be like Jesus? Because this is what Jesus modeled for us. And again in Mark 9.35, he said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. And this is kind of counterintuitive to the way that we you know, are told to be self-promoting in in this world and in this culture, that in the kingdom of God, the way he defines it is that, again, greatness comes through leastness. 
And there has to be a dying to self, there has to be humility, there has to be thinking of self less in order for God to do his good work. And so Jesus uses this child as an example of humility. But I just want to point out two other examples that he uses as children uh, for our good, and that is the example of faith. Now, in Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, and I read it at the beginning of our baby dedication tonight, where it talks about how people were bringing little children to Jesus, and, and then the disciples were indignant because he, the disciples thought that Jesus shouldn't be bothered by this, like as if children aren't important or something, and Jesus has more important things to do, and he rebukes his disciples, Jesus does. And he says in verse 15 of Mark 10, that he says, I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And, and it's the idea of this childlike faith. Jesus says, if you want to enter the kingdom, you're going to have to have childlike faith. You're going to have to humble yourself like a child, but you also have to have a faith like a child. Now, all of us know that children, young kids, are just very trusting. They're just very trusting. It's the reason why, as parents, we have to warn our kids... Listen, don't talk to strangers and don't get in strangers' cars and don't take candy from strange people, all this kind of stuff. And rightfully so. Why? Because kids are naturally very trusting. Very trusting. And Jesus says, you and I have to have this kind of faith. We have to trust God. We have to believe God. We have to have a childlike faith if we ever expect to get into the kingdom of heaven. And then one other example I wanted to point out that I find intriguing is that Jesus uses the example of children for uninhibited praise. Now, this is also here in Matthew, so just uh, take a jog a little bit to Matthew 21, and I want you to see this scene here, here with me because it's a very uh, precious scene in the temple of, of the Lord. And this is uh, in chapter 21 when Jesus makes the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. This is Palm Sunday. And he's about to be crucified in in just a few short days. And as he makes his way into the temple area in Matthew 21, it says in verse 12 that Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, notice this, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. The religious leaders, they got indignant. And verse 16, do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? I love this scene because it is a reminder to us not to get so stuffy in our worship, that we have to take a lesson from little kids. These little kids are running around the temple going, Hosanna to the King of David, Hosanna to the Son of David. I mean, they're just worshiping him and they're praising him and they don't care who hears them, what they look like or how they sound. And I love this about kids. You know, years ago, when our church was smaller and we were able to do things like this, around Christmas time and Easter, we would have the little kids from the Sunday school come and stand up here on the steps, and they'd sing around Easter, Easter songs, around Christmas, they'd sing Christmas songs, like one or two songs. And everybody just loved it, and it's always so beautiful. Because, like, at Christmas time, there's always this one kid on the top step going, at the top of his lungs, away in our manger.
joke. And he doesn't even care how he sounds. And it can be completely off tune, and he's yelling and screaming, and everybody's wonderfully smiling at him because they just know this kid is just all into this song. And it's just this self-abandoned, I'm just going to praise God, and I don't really care. Now, that same kid, you get him in high school, and now it's going to be like, oh, in a manger, a crib for a bed. You know, because why? We get self-conscious all of a sudden. <laughs> I remember Terry and I miss Lindsay now. We dropped her off at college on Thursday. So it's been a time of grief and mourning and gnashing of teeth around our house. But I remember, you know, after the, Lindsay was about four years old, and, we had, and that was a time when Space Jam, the movie Space Jam, came out with Michael Jordan. And, and she would love to go around the house singing, I believe I can fly. I believe I can touch the sky. And she'd always put the whoo in between every single line. And we got her up, but we'd say, Lindsay, get up on the hearth. Get up on the hearth of the fireplace and sing that, your, your heart out. And she'd just get up there and she'd go, I believe I can fly. Woo! I believe I can touch the sky. Woo! And she'd sing her heart out. I think about it every night and day. Woo! All right, I know you want to see me go on, but I won't. But my point is, she would sing her little heart out as a four-year-old. Now, today, 18, honey, why don't you get up on the hearth of the fireplace and sing, sing that song? Uh, I don't think so. So, uh, you know, why? Because when we get older, we get a little bit, and so here's what happens. We come to church, and as little kids, we're singing our hearts out. Then it's time to worship. We're like, ah, I don't know. Can I lift my hands? Is it safe? Just kind of the palms. That's all I'm going to give right now, the palms. And, and, and we get a little sophisticated, and we get a little self-conscious. And Jesus is saying, take a lesson from little kids. They have uninhibited praise. And God has ordained praise from the mouth of infants and babes. So, back here in Matthew 18, he keeps talking about little children here. He's going to keep using them as examples. Verse 5, let's keep reading. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Listen to Jesus. He's like, you lead one little kid away? You lead him astray? It's better you just have a millstone hung around your neck and you thrown into the depths of the sea. This sounds a little bit more like the Godfather instead of Father God. You know what I'm saying? But the truth is, it's because God loves children and he cares about their eternal significance. And so he he warns us, don't don't do anything to lead little children astray. First time I went to Israel in Capernaum, there is an ancient artifact from the time of Jesus of an ancient millstone. And, you know, I I don't know what concept I had about a millstone, but it was much larger than I thought. It's about four feet in diameter. And it would take a couple of donkeys, and they'd, they'd run a pole between the, the millstone. would have a hole in the middle of it. And it would, be within, it would be contained within a larger basin. And then the poles would be attached to donkeys, and the donkeys would just kind of walk around, and they would have to move. And then, the tr- and then the millstone would just continue to circulate around the basin. It would crush whatever grain or, gra- or uh, olives that you had in there and, and do its work. But it was huge. It was a couple hundred pounds. So Jesus is saying here, look, there's eternal consequence for those who would hinder uh, the, uh, the eternal 
a life of a young child and cause a little one uh, to sin. And so he's very protective here, and he's very loving of children, as should we, and he's very concerned about their eternal well-being. And he says in verse 7, Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Now, by the way, this is very similar to what Jesus said back in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. He had a very similar statement. He says in Matthew 6, 29, that if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And that statement follows the verse about lust. When Jesus says, you've heard that it was said to not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Now, in that context, and so we need to understand context always in Scripture, when we talked about this back in Matthew 6, we talked about that Jesus is not saying do this literally. He's saying do, take this seriously. Now, how do we know that he's not saying do it literally? Well, in the first place... It, it would have been impossible for these guys to hand out Bibles tonight. Anyway, that was a cheap shot. But that would, that would relate for all of us. Because the issue is, look, if Jesus said, if he meant it literally, and I, and I know a pastor who, who somebody in his congregation took this literally and cut off his hand with a hacksaw. And it's just like, Look, so before anyone rushes out and thinks, is Jesus, is this what I'm supposed to do? And you come in blind next week, please understand that in context, what Jesus means here is you have to take dealing with sin seriously because if you were to cut off both hands and gouge out both eyes, does that mean you'll never sin again? If mutilating the body would stop the sin issue then we should mutilate the body. But we all know that mutilating the body doesn't stop the sin issue. Why? Because the sin issue is a matter of the heart. So when Jesus speaks in these extreme measures, he's saying take seriously the need to deal with sin in your own heart and life. Because we have to be mindful of the fact that left unchecked, it'll destroy us. So we take this seriously. These are strong words, but we are to take things seriously. But in this context here, not literally. Maiming the body does not make us less likely to sin. It's a heart issue. We need to get our hearts right with God. Verse 10, he says, See that you do not look down on one of these little ones, still talking about children, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. And this is where we get, honestly, the concept of uh, people having guardian angels. And the Bible does say in Hebrews 1, verse 14, it says, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Uh, Sometimes I think in our 
uh, culture, even even in I'm talking Christian circles, we become way too preoccupied with demonic things and Satan and you know demonology. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Pastor Gary has been walking us through the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. This unique perspective on Jesus' life gives you a glimpse into the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and the true King above all kings. Jesus' greatest act while on earth was to give His life to pay for the sins of every person. That includes you. If you're ready to step away from your mistakes and failures and embrace a new life, Jesus is ready for you. His grace is enough. You can come to Him no matter what your past looks like. Would you like someone to pray with you? Or do you have some more questions? We'd love to talk to you. Please connect with us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. We'd love to meet you, too. You're invited to join us this weekend at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg. We're meeting in person as well as online. And you can find all the information you need on our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. There, you can also hear additional messages from the series in Matthew or others that Pastor Gary has shared. Again, that website is cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know